0: Welcome to the Talent Development Hot Seat. I am your host, Andy Storch, and I am excited that you are joining me today for another fantastic episode and conversation to help you up your game in talent development. And today's is no different. We are all about that mission of helping you accelerate your career success in talent development. And today I've got a great conversation for you about business simulations, experiential learning, about decision-making, and about inclusion. We cover a lot of ground in this interview, and today I'm talking with my friend Brent Snow. Brent is a recognized expert in the design and facilitation of strategic business simulations, highly interactive developmental experiences focused on building inclusive leadership capabilities, business acumen, and applied decision-making skill building. Brent is also a solution partner with the Advantage Performance Group, which is the sponsor of this podcast and the creator of innovative solutions such as Interplay, Decision Mojo, and The Inclusive Leader. Now, I met Brent when I moved to Advantage Performance Group as a partner back in 2017. We started working together. I learned all about his solutions at the time, Interplay and Decision Mojo, and then later he came out with The Inclusive Leader. And I was a partner with with Advantage Performance Group for a couple of years now. So full disclosure that Brent is a solution partner with them, and I got to know his solutions through that. And I always wanted to invite him on the podcast to share about some of the work that he's done because he's been in this space for so long and has some really great insights to share and is really brilliant, I think, in creating amazing solutions. And, you know, quick note about Advantage. If you're not familiar, of course, as I mentioned, Advantage Performance Group is our main sponsor for this podcast. They are a professional services firm dedicated to providing a continuous stream of creative learning and consulting solutions that equip individuals, teams, and organizations to be the best at what they do. And they represent solutions from a lot of different solution providers including Brent and his company, 10,000 Feet. In this interview, I'm going to talk with Brent a little bit about his three main solutions, You know how some of those came about. The first one being Interplay, which is a business simulation, which is like a holistic approach to helping people understand how a business works. And then we talk about Decision Mojo, which is a program he created to help organizations, teams, individuals really think about how decisions are made and all the pitfalls that we run into when we're making decisions. And we go into a couple examples and some things that I run into. I have such a hard time making big decisions and even small decisions. And we reference what Jeff Bezos talks about and how Amazon has been so agile and fast over the years, faster than most people because Bezos talks about type one and type two decisions and how Amazon is able to make decisions faster. So you definitely wanna listen to that conversation. And then we talk about the latest solution that Brent has created called the Inclusive Leader, which is all about creating more inclusive Organizations and bringing awareness and eliminating that unconscious bias that we know we all have and every organization deals with. So this is a great interview. I'm excited for you to listen to it. Again, Brent is a solution partner with Advantage Performance Group. You can find out more information by going to advantageperformance.com. And this podcast is also sponsored by the Talent Development Think Tank, which is, of course, your number one place to go to learn, share, grow together in talent development. And you can find out more information by going to tdtt.us. All right. Without further ado, let me take you now to my conversation with Brent Snow, all about business simulations, about decision-making, and about building a more inclusive culture. Enjoy. All right. I am joined now by Brent Snow, who is the CEO and founder of 10,000 Feet and recognized expert in the design and facilitation space and learning space, working with companies all over the world for many years. Brent, welcome to the show.
1: Oh, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, this is
0: a a long time coming, Brent. You and I have known each other for, I don't know, three or four years and worked together many times and haven't had you on the podcast yet. Always been impressed with all the different solutions you've put together, the work you've done with clients. And I'm excited to be able to showcase that and talk about what's going on out in the space, especially the work you've been doing recently around decision-making and inclusion and how you're helping companies with that. But I'd love to start with you know how you got started in this space, and especially, I think Interplay was the first big solution that you you came out with on your own, right? And I'm curious how that all came about.
1: Well, let me go back a little bit further in time to why did I even head down this path in the first place? And you know, I like to joke that when I got out of prison, I nobody would hire me, so I had to figure out something to do. And <laughs> that's, that's actually not, that's not actually true. I Actually, somewhere really, really early on knew that I wanted to do work that was related to helping people build their capabilities in one way or another. I even designed an undergraduate major for myself, which I lamely called way back then human resource development. But I wrote this whole proposal that I somehow got the university to accept that was essentially all about, I would use my skills and talents to help people get better at doing the things they really cared about doing. Uh, And that was, was this interdisciplinary thing. I took courses in all sorts of different areas as part of the process. And partly it was just my own sort of issues with authority and being told what I could study and couldn't study and what somehow would make sense as part of a major. And that was an issue for me, but it was also somewhere I had realized that I really cared about helping people develop their talents and develop their skills. I'd had a summer in Berkeley, California, living with an uncle and an aunt. he was a re- relatively famous physicist at the time. And he was telling me at one point how he really felt there, need, there needed to be somebody who could bring different scientists together from different specialties and that they needed to get better at talking to each other across disciplines and that struck me. And he said, you know, that nobody really does that well. And I thought maybe I could learn to do that well in one way or another. But long story short, a couple of the courses I took as part of my interdisciplinary program that I had put together were in adult learning. It was a, there was a graduate program in it. I managed to get into those courses, even though I was an undergraduate. That really piqued my interest. I ended up going on and doing graduate work both a master's and the majority of the coursework for a doctorate in adult learning. A number of years after that, I had worked for Outward Bound developing, you know, people in outdoor kinds of settings and realized that, you know, that was all part of the thing. And so ultimately for me, it's just been this journey, this life journey that I've been on. I, while I was finishing the latter part of my coursework, I started working in a large U.S. corporation. I ended up being in charge of all their management and executive development and that, I, that opened up a whole world to me. I didn't even know that world existed. Um, and then when I left that organization, that's kind of when I started my own consulting work and started to design and develop programs. And essentially what happened is I brought into that organization, it was part of this sort of management leadership development stuff I was doing. I brought a simulation in and I was actually studying also simulations as part of my you know, university studies at that point um, as part of my doctoral program. And I was just blown away with the power of the simulation. And so I made it an absolute point to focus my dissertation at that point on simulation design, the creation and facilitation of simulations. I studied some of the best simulation designers out there. I studied some of the best simulation facilitators. Then I brought this simulation into the organization and watched how impactful it was and realized that there was a lot of opportunity to create them, to, to do work with them. I did about as much as I was going to get away with doing at this particular company and realized that that was kind of maybe my opportunity to go out and see what I could do and see what I could create. And Interplay wasn't the first thing I ever created, uh, but it was the one that I sort of brought to bear a lot of the lessons from other ones that I had created that hadn't maybe worked as well. And, and so.
0: Yeah. And i am curious about, I was curious about Interplay because it's it's been very successful, right? It's a program that maybe you have numbers has been run for hundreds of organizations and thousands of people around the world. And, you know, full disclosure, you know, with the work you've done as a partnership with Advantage Performance Group, you know, I got involved with that when I was a partner, I got certified as an Interplay facilitator. So I've been involved with the program a little bit. And Mm -hmm. it's kind of this great simulation that Brings every aspect of the business world together in like a one-day experience of you know managing customers, employees, projects, and all the financials or organization. You really took a lot of complex things and distilled them down into like one day of okay, I'm going to understand everything. And I was kind of curious how that program came about and what the big you know challenge or use case is for that in in companies.
1: It came about. I was um, I had originally done. Work with simulations that others had created, and most of the simulations were very much focused on managing tangible assets in a business up until that point. And you know, this has been true, I think, through through time. A lot of simulations have focused on models of businesses that have been very much about man- managing financial capital, uh, plants, production equipment, inventory, and a lot of the financials have derived from that. And yet here I was living in a world where an increasing part of the value that was being created were not being created from the tangible assets, but were actually being created by the know-how. We had a whole sort of emergence of something called the knowledge economy. And I was actually very involved in some of the early stages. I went to a whole bunch of conferences on that. There was a lot of also understanding that marketing and brand and customer relationships and that sort of thing was a huge part of your success and in addition to that your ability to capture know-how and transfer translate that into new kinds of ideas and new products new solutions through various kinds of internal processes was all a huge part of success in this sort of new uh economy that was emerging very few simulations really took that on and actually focused on that in a big way and if they did it was only maybe just as a piece of the larger picture most of the time they still brought the picture back and the focus back to simply managing cash flows and managing the tangible assets and while that is absolutely important i also believed it was absolutely even more important to understand how paying attention to all of these intangibles was ultimately going to lead to positive cash flows was going to lead to good financial results and so I don't know i just did a ton of reading i was involved in a, that community of folks and i just believed very much that there was an opportunity for a simulation like that and it took a client to simply say we want you to create a simulation It happened to be apple who were looking for a simulation to put in the middle of a leadership development program that that was called amp it stood for the apple management program and they wanted this kind of all-encompassing simulation that was going to somehow really speak to their business and their business was as much a know-how business as it was a, you know, making of computers and computer equipment at that point. And, uh, you know, they kind of put out the challenge, you know, if you build it, we will uh, conceivably use it. And that, that's, what's the catalyst. And so I, I had a representative client initially, Microsoft later jumped on board and became part of it. And they were enough different that it forced me to build a simulation that could work in both contexts and they were both okay by the way with the fact that I was working with the other organization in fact they actually liked it because I asked permission in both cases but it forced me to build this much more kind of flexible platform had I only built a single bespoke simulation for one company it probably would have been so specific to that company it wouldn't have been generalizable to a lot of different kinds of companies and the fact that I had these two quite different companies at that time forced me to create. a more Yeah,
0: you, you created something that was, it's generic, and maybe some companies want something really specific, but it's something you can plug in right, right away and run for any group of employees at any company to help them really understand how business works. And something I noticed in running Interplay and many other business simulations in the corporate world is a surprisingly high percentage of people who work in the corporate world have no idea how their company works, let, you know, or how a business works, let alone how their company strategy works. And I'm sure you've noticed that as well.
1: Well, part of what simulations do that I think is part of their magic in some ways is they're very hands-on and you sort of get in there and you're playing around with the variables and you're making decisions and seeing the consequences of those decisions. But they also allow people who oftentimes have ended up in fairly senior roles as leaders to in a very face-saving way kind of learn a lot of stuff that they feel like they probably should have known or know, and right? yet they're no. going to own up and say you know what I never really understood a PL or a balance sheet or I never really understood how all because I think hey that's what I'm getting paid to do I ought to be good at this mm-hmm. whereas you throw them into this competitive simulation where everybody's a little bit of a beginner and they get to you know bring what they already know but they also get to now encounter this stuff and and really in a very face-saving way, kind of up their game without having to admit necessarily to the world that they don't really know all the things that they might.
0: Yeah, and it's a lot safer to ask these questions and learn it in a simulation than Mm -hmm. in real life, go to your boss and and when they're like, we need to increase profit. you're like, I actually don't have any idea what that means or how we do that, right? Right. Now, Now you're in a simulated world and you can ask questions and figure out the rules of the game, but all the lessons translate back to real life and helping people really understand how a business works.
1: There's also a pretty deep theory in the sort of adult learning, you know, world, which is that adults um, learn best by connecting new knowledge with existing knowledge. Mm. And, and, you know, part of what we need to do as people in that space who are bringing learning is to create bridges where they can kind of bridge experience and knowledge that they already have with whatever the new ideas and new concepts that you're bringing are and, and, you know, a simulation that contains a lot of what they already somewhat know, plus some new stuff becomes a wonderful bridge for them to, you know, they don't feel like there's, you're not working, and you're never really working with blank slates, even with kids, but adults bring a pretty deep trove of experience and knowledge to the table every time. And, you know, there's some unlearning that needs to happen. There's some new connections that need to happen. And part of what simulations do is they create those bridges in very powerful ways.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So speaking of simulations, when I joined first joined Advantage and started working with you back in I think it was early 2018, you had just come out with a new solution called Decision Mojo that was all about decision effectiveness in organizations and I think in a similar way, you know, making decisions is something that we all think we should be able to do. We shouldn't need any training on how to make decisions, and yet so many organizations struggle with people making effective decisions because you get caught in all kinds of different traps. So, you know, how did that come about? And, and, you know, what sort of problem does that solve?
1: Well, you know, it wasn't that I started out thinking, Oh, I really want to focus on decision-making. I think the simulations came about and interplay came about because I really, I realized, you know, that I had this skill around creating these and I thought simulations were particularly powerful, but what was occurring as I was running these, simulations for various companies. I would oftentimes have two teams of executives side-by-side. Side. These simulations are oftentimes competitive. You have teams running a company, you have four or five teams in a room, each one running their own company, and they're competing against each other to create the best overall results. One of the things that simulations do is they give you very immediate and very quick feedback on the quality of your execution, quality of your decision-making, You know, both tangible feedback and qualitative feedback in terms of you know, how you're working together. And and I would have these teams in a room, and sometimes I'd have these teams, you know, side by side, for all intents and purposes, they were very equivalent, equal amounts of experience, equal amount of smarts, equal amount of, of, you know, maybe learning in various contexts. And yet one team would be making both quantitatively and qualitatively better decisions than the other. And it would show up, we could see it in the results. It wasn't some sort of hypothesis that they were doing. You could see that they were executing more effectively, making better decisions, learning from their decisions more effectively, and then applying that to the next round of the simulation. And I was just curious, like, what's the difference? I mean, is it one person at the table who somehow is leading in a better way? Is it, is it some way in, the, in how they're interacting with each other? What is this unique something, secret something that this team has that the other team is struggling with? And what it came down to ultimately for me was decision-making. Their ability to, in situations of ambiguity and time pressure and too much information and multiple different perspectives, their ability to somehow harness that in a really positive, effective way and make good decisions, given the variables they had in front of them in simulation. So I started taking notes and I started just observing and seeing if I could somehow capture in a bottle what that secret sauce was. And I discovered it was really... There were a lot of different parts of it. And I also, as I started watching these teams, I started doing my own research and reading what had been written out there, reading whatever books seemed to be out there, whatever articles were out there around decision-making, and also looking for any workshops or programs that might actually focus on this skill because I thought maybe there's something I could do here with this as well. Lo and behold, there really was nothing out there. Nobody had really created any particularly good programs around decision-making. There were one or two graduate programs. Wharton had a program, um, University of, uh, uh, where was it? I think it was University of Michigan had a program, but there were very, very, and they were like, you know, there were a course in a larger MBA program of some sort or another, and that was it. Very few organizations had ever done any work in around decision making and there weren't any real good programs out there and I thought wow you know this is sort of in keeping with who I am nobody's really doing doing this well maybe something needs to be created and so then I started to build a program around decision making called ultimately decision mojo Um, love the term mojo it's sort of this art this magic this thing that allows you to be particularly effective and successful and it's a little bit undefinable, like your ability to make decisions. How do you how do you make decisions? I can't see inside your head. I don't know yeah. how, but you do. It's both, you know, um, hard data and intuition. It's judgment. It's analysis. So, decision mojo really came about over a number of years. It was not an easy. I took two. You know, it took me two different passes at it. I started working on this. Um, back in like 2005 and six initially, but then I got really busy and it was proving to be more complex and challenging. And so then I didn't, so I sort of put it aside and then I cycled back in 2010, 2011, realized, you know what, you know, if I don't do this and somebody else does. i will <laughs> be mad I'll at be yourself. Little, yeah. I'll be a little pissed. And, and also I realized, you know, it is doable. And so really what we wanted to do was just Still, still all of the latest and greatest research that's out there um, down into some really key principles, some core principles, some specific techniques to demystify it and also to really give people some handholds, you know, if you think of rock climbing and handholds that you would yeah. use, you know, or going up a ladder that help them, you know, go up the ladder of their skills around decision making.
0: COVID-19 pandemic and 2020 changed everything in business and talent development. Almost overnight, companies were forced to figure out how to engage their employees remotely and run their development programs virtually. Luckily, Advantage Performance Group has been running a webinar series and releasing free resources throughout the last year and beyond. Advantage is a proud sponsor of the Talent Development Hot Seat. known for creating, learning, and consulting solutions that equip individuals, teams, and organizations to be the best at what they do. Advantage helps leaders lead, sellers sell, and businesses flourish. To join our webinar series and find more of our free resources, just head on over to advantageperformance.com. That's advantageperformance.com. Yeah. Spe- speaking of those, those principles, I'd love to give people just a, a snippet, something they can take away. So, and I, and you know, I've been through this program, I've gotten certified and helped facilitate it. What, what's an example, like what's a very common decision trap that a lot of people get stuck in and a workaround for that? So maybe we could help some people right now with some decision making pitfalls?
1: Well, one of my favorites, uh, the trap that we named, um, and there are there are hundreds of decision making traps out there. Uh, there tend to be a few that are very sort of dominant that show up more often than not in our, particularly in our organizational context around decision making, or just in our lives. But one of the ones that I think is one we don't often consider, and yet is hugely, hugely important in terms of how we ultimately come to a decision is what we call frame blindness hmm. And frame blindness is not being aware of how the way about being aware of how it is that you're framing the decision, how much that's going to influence the decision that you ultimately make. So let me give you an example. <clears throat> when you're heading down the path of making a, a decision, one of the steps around framing a decision is stepping back. It's almost like stepping back and looking at what you're deciding. And being aware uh, of is this a forever decision? In other words, a decision that somehow has to last, last forever, or is this a decision that can get changed or modified, um, or you can you can uh, remake the decision if it isn't going exactly how you like? Jeff Bezos has been writing about this, and he calls these type one, type two decisions. Yeah, I was going to bring that up because it
0: reminded me of, of Bezos. Remember the type one and the type two, like. Basically, when you walk through the door, can you is it one where you can walk back through the door, or are you stuck mm-hmm. on the other side?
1: Right. Yeah. And so, you know, he he very much. Yeah, I love that terminology, that imagery around a one-way door versus a two-way door that you can come back through. But if it's a type one decision, and there aren't very many decisions, by the way, that are type one decisions. There's very, very few actually uh, decisions in organizations and in life. But if it's a type one decision, you absolutely want to slow it down. You want to make it very carefully. You want to make sure you brought as much of that. The type the one is the, to,
0: is the irreversible. That's once right, you walk irreversible, the once you can't the, the, walk
1: back, right? Right. The forever decisions, Richard Branson, Sir Richard Branson calls them forever decisions. Mm. And so you don't want to, if it's an important, and it's a big decision, you want to get it right. Because mm-hmm. you can't necessarily uh, go back through that door, or at least you want to make that decision in the best way that you possibly can, And and that means maybe taking some time with the decision, yeah. Type two decisions, those could be made made more quickly. You can adjust it. You can go back through the door. And yet, what often happens is, and many of us do this. You approach almost every decision as if it's this this forever decision. We agonize over these decisions. Agonize over. You could always go back. And you know, if if one of the things that people often talk about is something that they really struggle with is analysis paralysis. Mm -hmm. They go round and round and. You know, they, they worry, well, what if I don't get this right? And et cetera, et cetera. Well, the reality is that um, decisions, most decisions you can adjust or change. And actually the biggest risk is making no decision mm. or getting yourself so tied up in that sort of, you know, got to have it be perfect decision because that's another thing. People want their decisions to be perfect that you never ultimately make a decision or by the time you've made it, you've missed the window of opportunity in one way or another. I often... One of, the, one of the phrases that really has been a powerful one for me, and I, I don't know whether I ever came across this somewhere or it was one that I just sort of came up with, but I like to think of decisions as experiments with the future. And so if you think of scientific method, you know, you're, you're making an experiment and then you're gonna learn from it. You get data back and it tells you, okay, does this confirm my hypothesis or maybe disconfirm my hypothesis? Well, decisions are similar. You make a decision, based on some prediction you're making about something that's going to happen as a result of your decision. And then guess what? You learn. It either happens the way you expect it's going to happen, it doesn't happen the way. And so it's an experiment with the future. And I've often felt like if you can frame your decision as an experiment with the future that you're going to learn from, and you know that's a positive thing, it oftentimes frees you up to feel like, okay, I don't have to get it perfectly right. So that's one framing. Um, skill is stepping back and really making a meta decision around is this a type one or is this a type two decision another framing skill is around uh making sure you're exploring enough options all too often we find ourselves in a to what i call too narrow a frame where we're looking at either just option a or option b or what i call whether or not decisions and that's whether or not to do something which really means you're only considering one option you're just deciding go no go with that one option there's a huge amount of research out there that shows that both individuals and companies who who explore more than two options at least three maybe four options when making a decision end up having higher success with the decisions end up being more satisfied with the decisions after the fact and Partly what happens is the minute you introduce a third option into a decision, sometimes you just, it, it forces you to expand the frame. It forces you to look at things a little bit differently, come at it in a very different way. And so those are two of the framing skills and frame blindness. The trap is you just sort of accept the frame as given. It's typically too narrow. You never really step back and interrogate it. Is this a type one or a type two decision? So...
0: Yeah. I get stuck so often in decisions and indecision. My wife was just giving me a hard time this week because I have such a hard time making decisions. And I missed out on some really great opportunities recently because I was frozen on an investment decision that yeah. I was having a hard time making. And I've got to go back. I'm glad you brought up the type one and type two, like because it, as Bezos says, when it's a type two decision, you need to make it quickly and you know walk back out later if you need to. Whereas type one, obviously take your time. You and I both been through cancer, major health challenges. We've made some type one type decisions about our treatment and like, you gotta be thoughtful with those, but sometimes it's just like, oh, should I buy this stock or should I, you know, take, even take this job, like make it. And then you can always adjust and, and make changes later. I remember some of the other traps and I was, one of them I was thinking about recently. I can't remember the name, but it's basically has to do with information bias and our bias towards our own abilities and the one where,
1: yeah, I, we sort of simply named that overconfidence
0: over, oh Uh, yeah, overconfidence is the one, I don't know why I think about this all the time, that 90% of people think they're above average drivers, right?
1: Yeah. Or, 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 uh, another (laughs) little statistic, something like 75% of people think they have an above average sense of humor. Right.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I know I do, but obviously, of course, course. not everyone can
1: right? Yeah, so how does
0: that it, impact our ability to make decisions?
1: Well, here's the interesting thing about that. Uh, the higher up you go in an organization, the more likely you are to fall right to this trap. Mm. And it's partly because, well, I get promoted because I must be good. I'm in this senior role because I must, you know, have lots of good experience and knowledge. And so what happens is, you know, and it's also partly because we, we get rewarded in our leadership roles for being confident, for being somebody who says, look, I know we need to do this and this, you know, and, and being uncertain or unsure is seen as somehow as a weakness on some level. And so what happens is we tend to believe we know more than we do. We tend to think that um, we have greater information or greater awareness or greater knowledge Around something than we potentially do. And so our overconfidence leads us to overconfidently make decisions where we maybe should have sought some other perspectives or challenged our own perspectives in one way or another. Uh, and so, you know, clearly, as you get more and more senior in an organization, that particular trap is one where you need to really be thoughtful about not only acknowledging what you do know. But spending an equal amount of time and energy focusing on what you don't know. There's a, I think it was Colin Powell, who just passed away recently. One of his great quotes, and he taught, to, taught this to the commanders who would come to me, come to him with recommendations of one sort or another. And he, he said, Listen, here's what I would like. I want you, to first, tell me what you know. Second, tell me what you don't know. And then, and only then, tell me what you think." His belief was the most important part of that was the second part, which was telling them what they don't know. Because people will come in and they'll say, "'Here's what I know, and here's what I think we should do.'" And they would never acknowledge the uncertainties or the areas where they don't have perfect confidence. And so he felt like people were gonna be that much better as decision-makers if they were as thoughtful about what they don't know. And it's not that not knowing prevents you from making a decision, it just allows you to be more honest with yourself about what are the areas of uncertainty, you know, what are the areas where you might need to make assumptions, because you don't have perfect information. Um, that's the trap, by the way, that I suffer from is mm-hmm. overconfidence. Uh, and, you know, I'm sure I'm the oldest in my family, I'm the oldest of four, I had very uh, headstrong parents. And I think I just had a sort of a approach life with this air of confidence to get to do anything I wanted to do. Mm. And, uh, you know, in some ways it served me well, because I will go do things and will sign myself up for stuff that maybe, you know, less other, other people would
0: hesitate, right? But you're willing to, to do. And, and, stuff and, and
1: you know, you've got that same dynamic. I, <laughs> I've seen that in you as well. But what I've had to do is I've had to actually train people or encourage people is probably a better word to be comfortable challenging me and challenging me in situations where I speak with a certain air of authority you know something will 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 break down let's say on the car and I say oh well I think I know exactly what that is or whatever I may have no idea <laughs> but I just will right. you know or I'll be in some strange city and this is you know prior to GPS or whatever it is yeah. and I say oh well, I know how to go over there and right. then I get completely lost right and, right. Uh, right. and so you know it's, it's served me well, but it's also created dynamics. In Ma- Many
0: of our strengths can can turn to weaknesses as well. Yeah. Uh, there's, I love these decision traps. I wish we could spend all our time on that. And we may have to do another episode just on decision traps, because I think they're fascinating. But I want to make sure we spend a few minutes talking about your newest solution, which is the inclusive leader, which I know you were already working on. It obviously became a hot topic with the rise of the social justice movement in 2020. And a lot of organizations looking to you know not just improve diversity, but especially create more of an inclusive culture and one of more belonging. And I know you've been doing a lot of work in that space to help companies. So, I mean, how did that come about and and what do you think is the big need there or the thing that was missing with regards to, you know, unconscious bias and inclusiveness and all that sort of stuff?
1: Yes, that's a great question, Sandy. Well, thank you. So, <laughs> oh, uh, it, It's sort of like decision-making. It wasn't like I said, oh, I want to go do this because it's just something I'm, You know, inherently deeply interested, and although in some ways I have always been very much focused on issues of social justice, and and uh, you know, some even some of my early work in adult learning was around you know really thinking around learning in disadvantaged communities of one sort or another. But but sort of like decision making, you know, I started out running these simulations. I became intrigued with decision making as I was watching these teams make. In not great decisions and great decisions and wondering what the difference was and is this a teachable skill one of the probably most powerful precepts in good decision making is that the quality of decisions that get made in any kind of a either individual circumstance or in a group circumstance is directly related to the diversity of perspectives that are brought to the table. And so even if you're making a solo decision, your ability to go out and get people to bring different perspectives to play or to challenge you on that as part of it. But obviously in any kind of an organizational context, group context, the diversity of perspectives, the more diversity of perspectives you have at the table uh, and the better job you do of really bringing them into the decision process, the better decisions you're going to get to. And this is borne out by all sorts of research in lots of different contexts. Uh, so that being said, what I began to realize, if I'm really focusing on decision making and saying, OK, this is really critical to do, it's easy for me to say that. Go out there and bring in a diversity of perspectives. Make sure that when you're making a decision, you've got a diversity of experiences and perspectives and backgrounds and people who come from different places at the table on a decision process. I can say those words super easy to say organizations struggle to do that you look around the table and everybody's coming from very similar backgrounds or you know they've historically been typically white males around the leadership table in various contexts in one way or another they'll give lip service to oh yeah we bring in you know different perspectives but guess what they might invite them to the table but their voices are still marginalized or you know, they, they listen, but they're only give, given sort of a polite nod in one way or another. They don't have. So as I became clear to me that it was easy for me to say, but organizations struggle to do it, it also became clear that there probably was some opportunity around really focusing and building skills around, you know, organizations' ability to do that. And the inclusive leadership work that I've been doing is very much around, how do you include all sorts of different voices and perspectives within your organizational life? How do you create an environment where they A, wanna be part of it, they don't come in and feel like, wow, this isn't my world and I'm, you know, I'm gonna leave. How do you create a world where their voice becomes an important voice in the mix? How do you do it in a world where there are certain groups that have been historically disadvantaged or marginalized as part of that process? And also, there are lots of people in leadership roles who have unknowingly privileged certain perspectives and voices and discounted others. So, that led me down the direction of really focusing on those skills. And the particular thing that I believe is critical in the work we do around DEI right now is around just giving, similar to the decision making, giving people handholds giving them starting places giving them an opportunity to start to do their own experiments and try to be more inclusive and learn from it and open up their own perspectives in ways that help them just feel like they have the ability to go kind of create the organization create the environment where everybody matters and everybody uh is able to bring their best self to that work there's a lot of other good work out there um and i've certainly been involved with some of that it is focused on um, helping people become more aware of the biases that get in the way of them doing that. You know, we call this unconscious bias work in one way or another, and I think that's really important. But I also think that I think that sometimes we we end up leaving that just okay. I'm aware that I have these biases, but I don't always feel like I know exactly what to do or what the next steps are. And right. so I choose to focus my work less so much on revealing or uncovering or making people aware of whatever conscious biases they may have and more just on, Hey, we all have them. If you're, you know, when you talk to Kelly, you'll, know, you know, she, she is a wonderful way of saying, you know, if, if you breathe, you have biases, if you're human, you have biases, we all have them. Right. And, uh, and the reality is that <clears throat> it's not about that's good or bad. It's about doing things, taking actions that help you, Create the most once positive. you become
0: aware and then you can figure out the steps and things that you can do to create a more inclusive culture and be inclusive with the people around you. And, and one of the things that you know I've been through your program and you ran the inclusive leader at uh, a sample of it at the Talent Development Think Tank conference that Bennett uh, Phillips and I ran back in January 2020. And it was a big hit. It was like everybody's favorite experience at the, at the event because it's it's so difficult, right? We just think like, oh, yeah, I can recognize this stuff. But there are a lot of really challenging situations out there that don't always have an easy answer of like, how do you be part of the solution, not part of the problem? I wonder if you could give, we're going to run out of time soon, but maybe one quick example of that, similar to how we did with Decision Mojo, you know, what's, what's an example of something that people really struggle with that you know, is a common unconscious bias that we can do better with or build more awareness around?
1: Yeah, and I'm going to actually take this along a dimension that I'm, I'm going to take it down two paths, because I think we are uniquely challenged in some ways today with our hybrid workplaces around some of this as well. One is that, in if we think about bringing the, major, the, 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 the maximum diversity of perspectives in a positive way into a decision process, and being inclusive means doing that, I think all of us can relate to having been in meetings where certain voices dominate and other voices are not given the same level of, of um, either airtime or, or just opportunity to, to, to contribute in one way or another. Uh, and in some cases, it could be gender, it could be age, could be experience, could be ethnicity in various different ways, but part of being inclusive is being aware of how you're creating a, a meeting context where people who have different and challenging viewpoints get to bring them into the discussion, bring them into the decision process. And so, what are the skills? And part of this, part of it is what are the skills of recognizing that that might be going on, and then saying something. So, being an ally for somebody whose voice is mar- marginalized in that context, how do you speak up and say, you know, Andy, um, I know you've been trying to speak in the last few minutes, and haven't had a chance to would you you know and I somehow create space for you or part of it is helping the leader of a meeting be more successful so here's the conundrum we live in a world now where more and more of our meetings are happening virtually like this but they're oftentimes in hybrid context we tend to favor and privilege folks who are nearby who are close to us so if we're in a meeting and some of us are some people are remote and some people are right there in the room the people who are remote are not going to have the same level of In in many cases, same level of sort of equal contribution and they won't feel it as well. So that skill of being able to somehow create a meeting context where not everybody's even around the table together is going to become a really critical context in the future to create that kind of inclusive dynamic that's going to lead to the best results.
0: Yeah, I think it's something we all need to be aware of. Uh, we are definitely moving into a hybrid workforce. You know, there's gonna be a lot of companies in that situation. We're seeing it. I know Microsoft, I read an article by Sachin Delhi the other day about how Microsoft's making a big push, both doing it internally and helping companies with that, by no means in, endorsing any of their products. But, I, you know, it was interesting to see the way they're thinking about the future of work and how so many companies are going that way. And therefore, we all, if we're working in these types of hybrid environments, need to be aware of how we're including different people and how you know we're involving certain people and making sure that everything is equitable and inclusive and, and all that sort of stuff. And I think that's that's a whole new thing that we get to deal with in addition to all the old biases that we've been dealing with. So I, I appreciate you brought that up. I know there's a lot more great content in that program that we could talk about because there are so many great scenarios that we go through in there. And so we'll have to maybe have to do another conversation where we dig into some of that stuff. I guess to close things up, for people that are maybe interested in finding out more about the the different programs we talked about interplay decision mojo the inclusive leader and and the work that you're doing i know you have a partnership with advantage performance group where i've done work in the past and and who sponsors this podcast so maybe we can send people to the advantage website advantageperformance.com i know there's a lot of information on there i think you're fairly active on linkedin as well if people want to connect with you is that the best place for people to go
1: Yep. Yep. Just find me on LinkedIn. It's under Brent Snow, I think. Actually, I should know that, shouldn't I, Andy? Uh, Yeah, that's all right. Just look up Brent
0: Snow, 10,000 feet. Um, You can always reach out. We'll we'll put links to everything uh, in the show notes and you can always reach out to me as well. And Brent, this has been a pleasure. I always enjoy talking with you. You do such interesting, fantastic work, making definitely a difference and an impact on the world, always inspired by the work that you're doing. And uh, I appreciate you coming on and I know that we'll talk more soon.
1: Well, thanks, Andy. It's a mutual admiration society here. I likewise have high admiration for everything you're doing and have learned a lot from you. So thanks. It's great to talk to you. Well,
0: thank you so much. All right. Take care.
1: Take care. Bye-bye.
0: All right. That will do it for my interview with Brent Snow, all about business simulations, decision-making, inclusive cultures. I hope you got value from that episode. As I said before, I've always been really impressed with the work that Brent has done uh, I love all this, the, the stuff on decision-making and the scenarios and challenges and things he's created in his solution on inclusiveness. And in fact, that solution, The Inclusive Leader, we ran a, an abbreviated version of that for about two hours at the first Talent Development Think Tank conference that we ran back in January of 2020 that I hosted with my friend Bennett Phillips. And it was a huge hit. We had a, a big ballroom of about 150 people at tables of 10 going through it together, and they were arguing over how to handle different situations, and it was just a lot of fun to watch. I took a lot of pictures that I had posted on social media during that time. I'll have to dig some of those up when I publish this interview, but uh, really just a great solution. If you're interested in finding out more, again, you can either reach out to me or you can go to the Advantage website, advantageperformance.com, and you can click on solutions at the top, And you can find different categories there and click through and see some of the different solutions they have there. I want to also remind you that this podcast is sponsored by the Talent Development Think Tank membership community, which, of course, is the number one community out there in talent development. It's not old and stodgy like some of those others that are out there. We are progressive. We are about bringing people together to learn, share, grow. It's not just about the speakers, although we do bring in great speakers onto our community calls. It is also about leveraging the experience and expertise of the people in the community and I'm always excited for that. I'm also excited because we're hosting our first in-person retreat in just a few weeks in January January 19th and 20th in Orlando, Florida. At the time that I published this interview, I don't know if any tickets will be left available uh, but you can reach out to me to find out. You can also go to our website tdtt.us to find out more information about, about the community and if you're ready to join you can put in code HOTSEAT, H-O-T-S-E-A-T for 10% off for being a podcast listener. So thank you again so much for being a podcast listener. I appreciate you. And next week, I've got a great interview for you in a whole different area. I'm talking with the head of people from a very small up-and-coming tech startup called So Rare in the NFT blockchain space, which is a space that I'm really fascinated by. And I can't wait to share that interview with you. So stay tuned for that. And I will talk to you next time. Thanks again for listening to the Talent Development Hot Seat. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to leave us a rating and review on iTunes to help other people find the show. And as always, you can find all of our episodes and tons of free resources on our website, talentdevelopmenthotseat.com. Thank you again. Take care.